Welcome to Truth 30 with Joey Dumont, a podcast that debates our society's most politically compelling topics through the lens of slow journalism. Each show is investigated with a focus on narrative as well as discovery. We believe that the complexity of our culture today cannot be crammed into six-minute television segments or snippets and memes on social media, where ideology and entertainment has overtaken the creed of historical reporting. On the program, you'll hear the opinions of subject matter experts to help you separate the signal from the noise. Our collective goal is to better understand one another, not win a battle. After watching, you'll be reminded that a proper debate is not about victory, but that of inquiry, education, and viewpoint diversity. So tune in and talk amongst yourselves. You may even learn a thing or two. Today's interview is with Julie Bendel, a feminist campaigner, writer, and investigative journalist in Britain. Her recent book, Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation, was published in 2021 and has caused quite the stir with younger feminists, both in Britain as well as here in America. Julie writes for The Observer, Unheard, Sunday Times, The Critic, Spectator, The BBC, Telegraph, and the list goes on and on. She travels the world to investigate stories of misogyny, women's rights and suffrage, and gender ideology. She has lived in London with her partner, who just happens to be a feminist human rights lawyer, and her two rescue dogs. During our time together, we talked about her coming out to her parents when she was a young girl, her move to Leeds, her first gay bar, and the day she realized she was not the only lesbian in England. We then talked at length about the patriarchy she's been fighting against for four decades and counting, the plight of disenfranchised women across the globe, and why she has dedicated her life to bringing these issues to the fore. We also talked at length about the differences between gender and sex, where gender roles originated, and how the narratives of gender have harmed biological women as a collective. And sadly, we discussed the aggressive nature of trans activism, specifically against feminists of her ilk, including a story of a violent physical attack against her at a university when she was speaking on women's sex-based rights. It took four security guards to hold off the attacker, who happened to be a very large trans woman with a beard and a dress, and why when she reported the assault, she refused to use proper pronouns. Our entire chat was framed around protecting women and girls today. And as she shared during my interview, every woman on the planet has experienced the fear of male violence or the reality of male violence. And that's why I want to help eradicate this once and for all. I hope you enjoy the show. I understand that you have your, your mother in town. And uh, so that makes this time with you even more appreciative. So thank you so much for joining me on the show today. I appreciate it. So as we talked about briefly before we jumped on camera, I wanted to talk with you specifically about your book, which for those of you watching is Feminism for Women, which was a ripping read. I enjoyed it both times. I have tons of highlights, which I actually wanted to talk about at some length today. And so I guess the a really cool place to start with it. Where did you get the name? For many years, as an active feminist, I've seen a decline of the values and principles on which women's liberation was built until it's ended up a feminism that benefits men more than it does women. And I would call it feminism for men. And then I thought, I'm not going to call a book something in the negative. We've got to reclaim a feminism for women and challenge this faux feminism that suit so-called progressive leftist men in particular and rebuild the movement. And so what it's, it's a little bit of a manifesto, I suppose, 
which is what does a feminism that centers women and girls look like? Because feminism is the only movement on the planet that centers women and girls. Wow. And in addition to that, you identify as a radical feminist. No, no just a feminist. No, just a feminist. I, I, I'm called radical feminist and, and often uh, sometimes not very kindly, sometimes descriptively. Yeah. And what they mean is a feminism that focuses mainly, that prioritizes the campaign to end men's violence towards women and girls right. from rape to sexual assault femicide, so the killing of women and girls because they're women and girls, uh, and of course, domestic abuse. But although, yes, the descriptor kind of fits my feminism, okay. I've stopped tagging feminism. So liberal feminism, for example, isn't feminism. It just isn't. It masquerades as such, but it centers men and boys and their needs. And so feminism really has to be in its raw form something that is for women for the liberation not the equality of women but the liberation of women and so therefore i just call myself an actual feminist or a real feminist <laughs> people push. okay cool and and you've been in that same space claiming to be a feminist since growing up in england in 1979 per some of my homework is that when you came to the understanding and i Part of which was when you were working in a factory and you realized, like, this is not good. I can't be part of this. Well, I grew up in a, a very working class community in the northeast of England, which the conservative government at the time, Thatcher's government, had wrecked the industry, the steel industry, the mining industries, uh, which our communities relied on. And it was also a kind of uber patriarchal society because, of course, like any cultures and societies, including white working class cultures that have been left to police themselves, that have been ignored by um, the powers that be, that haven't been invited to the decision-making table okay. in any way, shape or form, and that haven't had the privilege of a higher education, often not even a, a basic education, then things play out pretty badly for women and girls. Because of course, the way masculinity works, as I see it, is that men, working class men, um, of all cultures that are unemployed, unemployable, and have other men telling them that they're not real men, that they are not providing properly for their families. They turn their rage towards those weaker, uh, and I don't mean physically necessarily, but less enfranchised even than they are. So we had an uber masculinity, no prospects of um, a decent job, if a job at all. I had left school a year before I was supposed to, didn't take any exams, was told by all of my teachers I wouldn't amount to anything. They, they saw me as, as trouble because I refused to, to capitulate uh, to, to some rules I couldn't understand. And it was working in that factory, recognising that my life was mapped out for me, that I would marry a local boy, that I'd have a number of children, that I probably wouldn't plan or necessarily even want, and that that would be it. And my mum, luckily, I have a great, great mother who possibly would have made different choices for herself had she had the opportunity, as much as she absolutely adored my father, who died recently, and my other siblings and myself. She encouraged me to see the world 
to, and the world at that stage was merely a city a bit further south called Leeds in West Yorkshire. And she knew that I would find my feet and that she was always there for me and my family was there as a kind of um, safety net. And that's when I met the feminists when I was 17 and newly in, a, in this great city, Leeds. And it just so happened that Leeds was the epicentre at that moment of the women's liberation movement. A lot was happening. Wow. Okay. That is coincidental. And and so you had these two, not only did you identify as a feminist at that point, did you come out as a lesbian at that same time? I had been outed at school. It wasn't my choice. Okay. It was, I mean, it was, it's interesting, isn't it? How things are kind of the same today. Although with the internet, back in my day, obviously well before the internet, social media, mobile phones and the like, and where pornography was still your father's playboy. Not that yep. my father had a playboy, but that's a great phrase that Gail Dines, the uh, anti-porn scholar, uses. It's no longer your, your father's playboy. It's now something much more insidious. So before all of that, we still had a sexist, if not misogynistic culture within schools of boys deciding that you were either girls were either a lesbian or a slag, a slut. And you had to be one or the other. Occasionally, some of the good girls that they saw as good, usually from a kind of little bit more of a slightly more middle-class family than the rest of us, or they were the head girl, or they were given special privileges to work in the library, whatever. Sometimes they got away with it. They were neither lesbian nor slag. But I didn't get away with it. And I wasn't interested in boys and therefore I didn't get coerced into um, sex with boys. I was very lucky. I had two extremely hard brothers who would have killed them. <laughs> very old fashioned, patriarchal. <laughs> yeah, brothers. I read about that too. Yeah. <laughs> and, and therefore I escaped things that could have happened to me. But they thought that I must be a lesbian if I wasn't putting out if I wasn't dating. And actually, um, I thought to myself something along the lines of, well, you know, I'm definitely attracted to girls. I have crushes on my school friends. If they are the alternative to lesbianism, I definitely want in. <laughs> right. This is great marketing. Yeah. They should be paid a cut from Lesbian Inc. Oh, that's good. Because they were the best recruiting sergeants that you would ever meet these boys at my school and so I was out and I didn't go back in I didn't say no 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 you've got it wrong I did kind of do a semi-closet thing for a few months until I met a couple of gay boys that worked at the hair salon that I swept up uh, in on a Saturday I did say I was bisexual and then thought what's the point there's no way I'm bisexual and that way um you know, I was thrown a bit into the lion's den, but soon got to realise that this was something that was a bit like being a girl in an oppressive society where men rule, which is that heterosexuality is the norm. It's what you do if you want to have a quiet life. But then I realised that you weren't going to have a quiet life because rates of domestic violence, um, rates of child poverty, terrible things that happen to women once they end up ensnared within 
compulsory heterosexual relationships, as I now understand it, was going to be grim anyway. So I suppose I just, um, you know, held on to the conviction that life would get better and at least I wasn't telling a lie. And was your mom as supportive back then as she is now? With well, it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, she, no, she, look, she was, you know, my mom's now uh, 85. And so she was born in 1936. She always was forward thinking for working class women of her generation because her mum was and her dad wasn't some kind of staunch patriarch but she also like everybody else and remember these are people without the benefit of a higher education or access to ideas to politics right to philosophy um like my my partner's family are in that contrast is really interesting and has taught me a lot about how we develop our values and how difficult it is to do so if you are actually trying to just live your life and, and you find that life hard. But my mum internalised the anti-lesbian, anti-gay bullshit that she read about in the newspapers, that she saw on television, that she heard people speaking about. Remember, we were supposed to be freaks, oddballs, we sexually mm -hmm. abused children, we recruited poor, unwitting heterosexuals into our uh, lion's den. And when she discovered that I was dating girls, I mean, this was all very chaste. It was, you know, um, quite innocent. But when she realised that this was my preference, she said to me, I think I know what's going on. She'd read a letter that she'd seen. Do you remember those things? Letters. You used to write them <laughs> in the paper and yes. post them. And so she she saw yeah. that in my room. She, she probably knew there was something going on. And this was a, a, a another girl I'd written to saying, are you a lesbian? I feel really lonely. What's it all about? Is there anything wrong with us? And she said to me, you know, I don't think you can be that way because I know my children. And if ever anything is wrong with you, I get a gut instinct. So I don't think you are. And that's when I said to her, mom, you're right. There is nothing wrong with me. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, you, you have it wrong. And she, she soon worked it out. My dad was slightly different. He was quite an old fashioned man. And when I told him a little bit further down the line, that I wasn't going to get married, that he could stop asking me if I was going to get married. Because remember in those days, marriage was just for the straights. And I told him I was a lesbian. I probably used the softer word of gay. Um, and um, something really interesting happened. He just nodded away and said, whatever makes you happy, pet. And then he forgot. He actually <laughs> forgot. And I had to retell him again <laughs> when I took my partner home when I was 25 years old and he was asking us both where we going to get married oh man that's, <laughs> that's awesome that's that's a sweet story and this is part and parcel to why I was so excited to have you on the show as you know at True 30 we are attempting to understand what is happening in our culture specific to gender ideology gender dysphoria and part of that discussion in my research, I've had, I've been fortunate enough to talk with clinicians, MDs, researchers, authors like Helen Joyce, 
who was the was actually the editor at The Economist until recently. She's taken a sabbatical. And she obviously introduced me to you and I have a couple others on deck for this exact purpose. We're trying to figure out, and the goal of True 30 is to have people understand each other without agreement. It's not necessarily like we want to get people to agree on everything, but one of the issues that we have here in our culture today is, as you know, and part of what we talk about at length in your book, is feminism itself started with you and your ilk, and you have been lobbying for the liberation of women for decades. And so now we're actually seeing that, to your point earlier, liberal feminism has changed. And do you consider yourself a second wave? Because this is a term, and I don't like to put terms on anybody. Mm -hmm. Second wave feminism is what I've read about extensively. And do you consider that an actual movement, a wave that you're part of? Or what, what, how do you describe you and your fellow suffragists over the last four decades? I, again, don't use the term, I don't use waves. Um, okay. I, I, I use movement. I, we're, we're part of a women's liberation movement which obviously was founded in the late 1960s in North America and, and in the UK uh, and, and elsewhere. And it was very specific that it was about women's liberation from something. And that something was male supremacy, patriarchy, whatever you want to call it. And of course, it was different, although connected in some ways, to the suffragettes and the suffragists of the former century, because they were concerned with not just universal suffrage for women, they were concerned with male violence, they were concerned about prostitution and the abuse of very poor, disenfranchised women. So there were connections, but that was a kind of movement where once the First and Second World Wars were over um, here in the UK and women had been required to work during the war, and then we're told to get back into the kitchen because normal service was resumed. The patriarch would come home and need his slippers and his whatever the British equivalent is of a martini. It's probably a cup of tea or a can of beer <laughs> um, and his newspaper. And that was it. Now, yeah. obviously, there was much disquiet amongst women and there were a lot of rumblings by the time it got to the 60s and women started talking to each other, which was unfortunate for men because they realised that their experiences were quite common, that this was not um, a lone man who was so weird that he would hit his wife to get her to comply, um, that a particular marriage was not unusual because, you know, many, many wives do not enjoy sex or have to endure um, sex that they haven't consented to, uh, that they weren't given the opportunities outside of the home that men were. And that, of course, we call that consciousness raising. And I wasn't involved at that stage. I came along later, as we've said. That was the beginning of the women's liberation movement. And so there are no waves as far as I'm concerned. Here we still are fighting for women's liberation. What you then have um, are some kind of they call themselves girl power feminists in the 1990s, which is, hey, Madonna, um, uh. Margaret Thatcher, even big, strong women who are having enough. You can't tell me we need feminism now when we have equality. We can go out and we can behave as badly as the men. There are even strip clubs that women go to now to ogle men or even other women. 
Um, you know, we've got Cindy Lauper kissing Katie Lang on the front cover of a magazine. We've got lipstick lesbian um, uh, culture. We've we've arrived. We've made it. And that clearly died a death because it was obvious there was still rank sexism and women were still in the same position, still the same levels of sexual violence and domestic abuse, and still the courts not dealing with, with it properly. And then we move into the 2000s where you have choice feminism, where it's anything a woman chooses to do is liberating for her as an individual, and therefore somehow it's feminist. When it's just straightforward libertarianism not part of a movement at all and then of course in more recent years we've had queer theory to contend with where that individual identity becomes supreme it becomes completely detached from the sex class of women in a way that individual black men you know would argue i've got a top job now i don't need this black civil rights movement Black Lives Matter have nothing to do with me and my experience. We've arrived because I've arrived. And so it's as ridiculous as that. But the problem is, for feminism, is that there are so many people that want it to fail, most men, and actually, to be honest with you, an awful lot of women who collude in their own oppression because they think it's an easier life, that... Anything that anybody says that's actually anti-feminist is latched onto immediately. Hey, this is the new feminism. Those irrelevant, middle-aged, haggard lesbians don't speak for us anymore. They are now outdated and outmoded. Unfortunately for them, we're more relevant than we've ever been. And that's why we're continuing to, to crack on, albeit in a kind of new context of uh, 2022, but same battles to fight. And is that what what you just described, is that analogous to what you said earlier with liberal feminism, the queer theory side of things? Is that including the queer theory in the sense that gender is now fluid, that, and we'll get into this actually with, (laughs) there was, yeah, let me finish my thought there, but the idea is that queer theory has started to trample on the historical rights and movement of what you and your ilk have been doing for decades, correct? Mm-hmm. Okay. Yes, yes, that, that's absolutely right. And so back in the 1960s, feminists and Marxists together, because many feminists at that stage were still very closely connected to the British left or the French left or wherever the left was um, thriving, and came up with a theory that is, it's not just a theory, it's a way of explaining material reality, which is that gender is a social construct. Uh Biological sex is a reality. And we really shouldn't put too much onto that unless it really matters, such as in the main men's physical strength and our reproductive um, organs. But otherwise, what we're talking about is gender. And gender is what many of us call sex stereotypes. So for men, although many men, especially gay men, or men who are seen as weak or small or not masculine enough, many men also suffer at the hands of bigger, taller, stronger, more heterosexual men Mm -hmm. because they live under the gender tyranny. But ultimately, it's women and girls. So we that's why feminists refuse to call gender gender roles. We don't think that they are enacted. We don't think that they're played out as Judith Butler would have us 
uh, believe. They are imposed upon women and girls. And of course, many women and girls play with gender, decide that it's fun, decide that actually this is normal, it's natural, they want to wear spike heels, um, trip around with loads of, of makeup and spend all their salary on having their hair done. Fine. But this isn't something that's innate. This is not anything to do with their chromosomes or their genetics in any way. And, and so feminists said, look, if it's a social construct, then what we need to do is seek to abolish gender because we are a biological sex and there are two biological sex. That's it. The queers came along. Um, and of course, Judith Butler was at that helm. And she took a very straightforward theory and subverted it slightly, but with enough indecipherable language to make it seem as though it was an interesting theory. And it never was. It was old hat with a bit of a twist. Um, and, and I suppose what it did was it disconnected the feminist analysis and the leftist analysis of gender. And it re-essentialized the notion of sex stereotypes. So all of a sudden, we are gender fluid. We can mm -hmm. play as women. We can wear big, heavy workman's boots with a little pink tutu. And we can wear spikes through our nose. And we can go to sex clubs and have sex with loads of women and then loads of men. And we can subvert everything that we're supposed to be doing um, as much as we like. We can be as queer as we like. But at the same time, if a 12-year-old or someone even younger, a female, say, is sitting there thinking, I'm attracted to girls, I have a crush on my best friend, I hate wearing dresses, I absolutely hate playing with girls' toys, I want to climb trees, could she be trans? Could she be trapped in the wrong body? So we've re-essentialized what feminists unpicked. We're not gender critical. I mean, I would never use that term. I'm a gender abolitionist. It would be like saying I'm critical of God when in fact I just don't believe in God. So that's, that, in my view, uh, has been one of the biggest failings um, of the new so-called progressives, that they've re-essentialized gender rather than seek to abolish it. Yes. And that is actually part and parcel to what we saw even with our Supreme Court hearings here in the United States in February with Katanji Brown Jackson. She was asked the question by Marsha Blackburn, a senator in the South. Can you provide me a definition of woman? And she couldn't. Well, she could, obviously, but she knew that it was a very slippery slope specific to our body politic here in the United States, where our progressive left if she lost any of the senators on that, she could have possibly lost her actual confirmation. And there is a big contingent in our, in our country that now is saying the same thing you're saying. On the progressive left, trans women are women. And if you disagree with that statement, you are immediately called a bigot and a transphobe and a turf, which is a term I don't know if a lot of people know, but it stands for trans exclusionary radical feminist, which I know has been hurled at you numerous times because I've now been following you for five or six months, your articles and your book and all of these things. You were actually, and I wanted to bring this to the, to the fore, you were once attacked at a symposium by a trans female, correct? By a man who yes. identified as a trans woman. 
Yes. And then when you wrote about it or someone else, and this is where I lost kind of some of the, the thread there, but you were attacked specifically by the progressives for using the wrong pronoun in describing the attack. And they were more mad at you than they were at this person that attacked you, correct? That's right. What happened was in 2019, I, along with some um, other feminists, some academics and commentators, to speak at Edinburgh University, Edinburgh in Scotland, a so-called progressive university, about male violence, about single-sex provision for women, which we only have because of male violence. Trust me, we would not care. If there was no rape, sexual assault, sexual harassment, um, and harm to women through men's violence, we honestly would not care if we were in a changing room or, or I don't know, any kind of sleeping arrangement, Mm. a dormitory, where we would see a bit of gristle hanging between some man's leg. Who cares, right? Right. It's just a body. So we only built these services because of male violence, because enough men do harm women, sexually in particular, for that to be a necessity. Yeah. So we were all speaking about some aspects of the risk to and the consequences of replacing sex as a protected category with gender identity, which would mean any male person without surgery, hormonal treatment, a change to to his appearance, any gender recognition certificate could simply identify as a woman and could demand access to those services, which has happened in Vancouver, for example. I've seen it with my own eyes, just men walking in, beards, penises, beards, the lot. And I spoke about male violence. I didn't once mention trans people. Before going into the university, we'd had to have an hour-long security meeting with several um, security men mm-hmm. who warned us about what might happen, who'd combed the place for bombs. I mean, this is a group of feminists talking about male violence. Yeah. And we walked past a huge, huge demonstration of trans activists draped in the pink and blue flags, shouting turfs, bigots, Nazis, and the like. And they desperately tried for weeks on end to get the university to cancel the event. This is how much of a threat talking about women's sex-based rights are. Just the debate itself caused this much of a ruckus. Oh, just the conversation. It's like back in the old days where women aren't allowed to speak unless they're spoken to. And so when we came out, I left with uh, one of the academics. We were sharing a taxi to the airport. And a male trans activist wearing a long skirt, he, he presented very male, he had a beard. It was just a bloke running up to me wearing a skirt, uh, shouting all kinds of profanities, vile, vile threats uh, and insults. And he went to throw a punch in my face. And I've been punched by a man before. And he was a tall, strong man. You could see he was full of rage and hatred. And it took four security guards to hold him back from me. Jesus. And it was all on security camera. Uh, And therefore, I was able to file a report with the police, which my colleague 
who witnessed the whole thing encouraged me to do. And the police dealt with it. It was, he was charged. The police officers were using female pronouns to me when they called me up about the report. They were saying, when did she come at you? Where did you see her? And I said, I will use people's preferred pronouns out of politeness if we're in any kind of social situation um, where that person is doing no harm whatsoever, defining at that moment as a woman. But I will not call my male attacker fueled by violent misogyny, she. I will not. Um, the police continue to call him she. And the our prosecutors charged him and the matter was dealt with by way of a community kind of resolution. I certainly didn't want him to go to court. I didn't want to have to go to court and be told by the magistrate that I had to refer to him as she. And I also am very liberal when it comes to our prison um, system. And it's the only time you'll ever hear me call himself a liberal. I think the prison <laughs> should be emptied uh, of everyone except for those that are harmful to other individuals. So, you know, I'm not a carceral feminist as the, um, the blue-fringed woke set would refer to any of us that try to call male violence to task. But it was a really, really horrible experience. I was so shaken because I've had worse than that in my life. Um, it was the fact that I was there as a feminist activist and had been for four decades talking about male violence and how we counter that, how we resist it, how we call it to task. And there it was. And then, of course, the next day, we've got an awful, awful publication, which I later went on to sue over another matter. I sued for defamation for libel, um, called Pink News. And we've got a special name for that publication, <laughs> which I won't tell you now. <laughs> okay. You'll definitely see it all over the internet. And her reporter, first of all, accused me of lying, because in the tweet where I announced this attack, which I thought was really important because the women who were still in the lecture hall had heard about it. I wanted it to be on record that these trans activists had got so violent that one of us was attacked. Although his fist didn't hit my face, it was an attack in law. And it, this is the correct terminology in terms of dictionary definitions. And it certainly was in the way that I experienced it and how he'd intended it. So I misspelt something and I meant to say I was attacked on the way to the airport but it got to at the airport and so they were saying but you weren't at the airport were you so what really happened they actually emailed me to say um and then wrote an entire piece about how I had claimed to have been attacked and I'd misgendered the trans woman right who I claimed attacked me uh, it was absolutely horrific that report. Oh, and, and the Guardian was not much better. The Guardian, a newspaper I'd written for for decades. The reporter was um, a woman who herself is very trans women and women in terms of her ideology. I'd known her for decades. And uh, the report was pretty awful. It was all about how the, the LGBTQQI two-spirit plus society at Edinburgh had all resigned en masse at a protest of our meeting going ahead, a tiny line about my alleged attack and a photograph of me with transphobic 
Julie Bindle attacked or claims to have been attacked. It was awful. It was so awful that the the, the editor um, actually got them to change the headline uh, on it as soon as as she saw it. So yeah, this is this is the way that things are right now. Yeah, that is so crazy. And and the, there's so many stories in your book that captured the same problem. And this is the one thing that every feminist I've studied over the last six months has talked about in their writings, whether it's in their books or their articles or on in symposiums. And I don't know if my listeners understand what single, single, safe, single spaces for females are part of what you've been mentioning here, which is rape clinics, domestic, uh, domestic violence, uh, changing rooms, all of these. And there's numerous examples that I really didn't understand. And the one thing that I have read and understand now better is that the reason for single female spaces is to protect females who have been harmed from the patriarchy in general. Or those that could potentially be harmed. Correct. Which in this case is males. Right. And so Helen actually, Helen Joyce told me that, because I asked her the same question. I said, is it, how is it harmful because of the progressives, which historically, and I come from the ad business. And the one thing we understand about liberals and conservatives is that liberals look through everything through two lenses, which is harm and fairness and concern. This is a, obviously a very reader's digest version, but, and then conservatives look through things of sanctity and order. So the inclusionary claim of progressives here in the United States is that if you don't include a trans female inside the center for rape or domestic violence, then you're excluding her and causing deleterious harm that may lead to suicide. So that's the claim. And so what I said to Helen was, okay, so help me with this on the progressive argument. Who is being harmed? This is that one person more important than everyone else. And she said, that's it. It's if we allow this person in, every single woman in that center is harmed. And she said that some of the centers actually were careful enough not to have male janitors and male Mm -hmm. employees in the buildings and that really woke me up because it was actually even the baritone voice or the beard or the physical presence or anything that had to do with mm-hmm. being a man or male, to be specific. That was a very, that was a big wake up call for me. And, and, and this single female space has been something that is a consistent red thread through everything I've read about feminism, even mm-hmm. though there's all the different sex now, if you will. But that's the one thing that stands true. And that is the biggest complaint of the queer theorist, correct? That they want mm-hmm. inclusion inside these pieces or these places, excuse me. If we take the example of prisons, feminists and prison reformers have campaigned for a long time for male prison officers not to be on those premises. They think it's absolutely inappropriate because the majority of women in prison have suffered, some of them multiply various forms of male violence. If you think about the way that our rape conviction rate is at the moment, where less than 1% of those reported rapes, which is the tip of the iceberg, Mm -hmm. end in a conviction in the UK, then you know that if, if a woman is raped, she's more likely to end up in prison through her chaotic lifestyle due to the trauma of that rape than is her rapist. There are women in there who've responded to violence, protected themselves, ended up being convicted of violent offences. Women who grew up in state care, 
in residential care, um, in chaotic houses, in sexually abusive and neglectful households. They're the ones most likely to end up in prison. Yes, they're scared of men. Yes, they are vulnerable to men. Guess what male pattern sexual offenders do? They go after the most vulnerable. Mm -hmm. This isn't about women attracting man after man after man who's violent, who's predatory. This is about men recognising that these women are the least likely to complain and the least likely to be believed. So those of us that have worked in prison reform for a long time have always said, look, we know that a majority of men choose to do this, but enough men do for it to be a risk. And more importantly, women are raised to take responsibility for our own safety. And we're blamed when we fail to keep ourselves safe. There are police officers that say things like, she got herself raped again. Well, quite frankly, you've got to be pretty ambidextrous to get yourself raped. There's usually a rapist on the other end of it. The victim blaming is off the scale. And so that's why feminists have always said it's not about all men being sexual predators. Far from it. But enough of them are. And because we all women, every woman on the planet has experienced the fear of male violence or the reality of male violence way more than once. It's the one thing that connects us as females on this planet. Yeah. And of course, the feminists are resistance to that. So if you're talking about a hospital wing, a prison wing, sporting facilities, if you're talking about camping facilities, we have the girl guides, you, you will probably have them or an equivalent, woodcraft folk, whatever. We, we sex segregate where there's vulnerability. We don't sex segregate at any other, we, we, we don't, we, we are vehemently opposed as feminists to sex segregation in social life, in home life, such as kind of religious communities. We're dead against that. We think that women should be at the table. We don't see why we should have to be kept separate from men as though we're somehow going to encourage them to commit acts for which they have no responsibility. This is a separate issue. This is about safeguarding. And it's quite unbelievable that you would prioritise, as the trans activists do, the likes of Karen White. Karen White, who is a male sex offender against children and women, who decided that he would transition without, again, any legalities, any surgical or hormonal intervention, and argued successfully via his lawyer, human rights lawyer, of course, that he should be put on a women's prison wing, where guess what? He went on to sexually assault several women. And he frightened all of the women. What about those women? Karen White, a male sex offender, his needs was placed above the needs of the women. And let me tell you the most ridiculous thing about this Karen White saga. And this is across the board. There are many more Karen Whites. Of course, men, even if they're genuinely wishing to transition to live as women, they're <coughs> sex offenders for God's sake. And you know, they they still they still offend uh, in the same way. There, there's no yeah. difference. And this happens in the liberal press, and it happens in the not so liberal press in the UK. When Karen White um, was on trial for the sexual assaults against women in prison. The reporter in newspapers decided 
that they would use terminology such as her erect penis was visible above her underwear. Her erect her. penis. Her erect penis. Gaslighting or what? And when I told this story at a book launch in Australia, and those Australian feminists, they make us look like absolute wimps. There's one, <laughs> one woman stood up and said, the only time the phrase her erect penis should ever be used is if a woman castrates her rapist and holds it up as a trophy. She had a point. <laughs> I bet she took Semantically it worked. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's great. Uh, that's great. Well, and, and that's actually part of a story. You went, I have another, I have a question for you on, because it's right across the pond from me. So I live in San Francisco and across the bay here in Oakland is a wonderful university called Berkeley. Mm-hmm. And in that, you wrote an article, I think it was two weeks ago, in The Critic. And it was it's called A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Narcissism. <laughs> and I would love you to talk about this because this story to me, after reading it, I was like, okay, it's almost as though you're making this stuff up. And <laughs> but it's all true. And it's, I mean, t- the fact that I'm a liberal and I'm godsmacked by a lot of what's happening with our progressive party here. Just imagine what's going on with our conservative party, with our GOP right. <laughs> and like all my relatives back in the Midwest. I mean, it's the fact that I'm gobsmacked as someone who's trying desperately to understand and be compassionate. Can you talk a little bit about Grace, Lori and Lori Penny and that whole saga? Because there's you guys going back and forth. You and Lori Penny alone <laughs> is worth some story. So can you talk a little bit about that? That professor? Well, Grace Lavery is um, a trans woman Mm -hmm. who is married to a trans man and who posted pictures of them having BDSM sex. I assume that translates. BDSM is the same everywhere. It's the same, yeah. Right. On Instagram or wherever. And that, you know, is that. That's their, their choice. And Grace Lavery also has written a book called uh, Please Miss, um, A Heartbreaking Work of Staggering Penis, which has to be the most pretentious book title I've ever heard. Now, I didn't really pay it much attention. I knew that another writer, a female writer called Laurie Penny, who is one of the Blue Fringe Brigade here, she's one of the kind of trans women and women, sex workers work kind of vibe, I knew that Laurie Penny had dated Grace Lavery when Grace Lavery was identifying as male because Grace Lavery is male. And Laurie Penny is as queer and as butlerite as you can get. So she's quite proud of herself that she dated someone who's now a trans woman. In fact, I think she's dated two or three men that then became trans women. Who cares? Who knows? (laughs) And Laurie Penny had a book out recently called sexual revolution which is anything but i was asked to review sexual revolution first again for the critic and i was in two minds because laurie penny and i are known to be adversaries Mm -hmm. she has written and said the most vile things about me personally and also about feminists of my ilk and my type and for example when you had the wee spa scandal um 
in LA where the convicted sex offender claiming to be a trans woman was spotted in a spa, female-only changing room or spa area um, with a semi-erect penis and a, a girl, a little girl, was scared. And when the little girl's mother complained to the wee spa staff, they said, she's got every right, she's a trans woman. And Laurie Penny was completely and utterly on the side of this convicted sex offender above this African-American woman who'd reported um, this scandal. And when somebody on Twitter asked Laurie, what would you do? What would you say to my daughter? Um, if she said to me, I've just seen a semi-erect penis in a female-only space. She said, I don't know. Uh, she's not my daughter, but I would probably tell her, don't stare at people's genitals. It's rude. So <laughs> this is what we're talking about here. <clears throat> yeah. We're talking about someone who puts the right of a man to get his rocks off, as we call it here in the UK, whilst looking at little girls and other females and be protected and defended by the management of the spa and by the so-called progressives in my country and in your country. So we've had this visible spat and she was calling herself queer. She's just married a man. Um, they're in a heterosexual relationship. And all of a sudden it's, I'm queer, I'm, 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 I'm a gender queer. Um, she was calling herself ridiculous. I'm a gender goblin. What does the word queer mean to you? And so I decided to tell her on a thread on Twitter one Saturday afternoon when I was really, really <laughs> sick of it all, exactly why lesbians and gay men who have fought for our liberation tend not to like the word queer. We had it kicked into us when we were growing up. Yeah. We are proud of our identity, but we do not play with it and decide that we're a bit queer because we like choking women and shoving their heads down the toilets or wearing a gimp mask um, whilst having sex. It's about sexual orientation and identity that we have been thrown out of our housing for. We've lost jobs. We've lost family members. Some of us have lost our lives. Many lesbians lost their children through the family courts when their estranged husbands that they'd broken up from said that these women were perverted. We've lived through a lot and we fought to have those laws and those attitudes overturned. So I told her exactly why we didn't welcome a straight girl deciding that she was colonizing our term, our, our, our identity and subverting its meaning. But then I was asked to review her book. So I thought, okay, I'm going to be away on holiday for a week. I will read her book extremely carefully and I will be fair. Otherwise, I would have said no. I will be fair and I'll look at the merits of the book. She claims it's a big feminist book. I've just written a feminist book. I know feminism. I've lived it for 40 years. She's just tweeted about it. And it was terrible. Uh, I read the book twice. I had to go back over certain passages. It was that vacuous. She got things so wrong about the women's movement, about feminists and what we've done. She had a term running through this book, which was queer people and people of colour to mean these are the people that you can never criticise. These are the people who have started and will end the revolution. These are the people who can do no wrong. In other words, it was an identity, not what you're actually doing. 
to change material reality. She wouldn't use the word woman. It was, it was an awful book and it certainly wasn't about feminism. And I published the first review. And then, of course, other reviews came in the mainstream press from other feminist journalists, all of whom slated it way worse than I had because I had done my best to see if there was any coherence. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't unkind, but it was hard, hard work. Laurie got very upset when the bad reviews kept coming. She decided that she developed complex PTSD symptoms as a result of these bad reviews. She got very, 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 very um, traumatized by this. And of course, we just thought it was hilarious that she was publicly uh, (laughs) describing her disgruntlement at getting a bad review that she called it somehow traumatic. So, look, you know, that happened. And then Grace Lavery was going to come over to do a book launch because his book. And I I will not do the pronoun thing for Grace Lavery. I really won't. And Grace got in touch with, um, with Helen, who you've had on the programme. Yeah. Helen Joyce the author of, uh, of Trans, and said, debate me. I can debate anyone. I'm a really great debater. And he and Laurie Penny were joshing about how he was the best, the greatest, wonderful. And they then started joking about his sexual prowess in bed when they were together. And it was just, get a room, guys. We don't, we really can live without this. <laughs> and uh, he then came to me and said, would you debate me? And I said, of course, because of course the, the trans cabal, as I call them, the trans-Taliban, have had this, this, this rule that they do not debate. They call it their very existence. We call it them being too chicken to lay out their thesis and justify their actions and their stupid beliefs in front of intelligent women who've been doing the work. That's all it is. So I said, yeah, of course I will, Grace. I'd be delighted. Yeah. So these two debates were going to go ahead. Um, and then, then Grace cancelled Helen Joyce by saying that the platform on which she was about to debate him, uh, an online publication called Unheard, U-N-H-E-R-D, which is has left-wing, right-wing, everything in between, really interesting writers um, and commentators. It's a good pub. It, it's, it's a great publication and, yeah. and very, very widely read and it's, you know, platforms, uh, like I say, a, a diverse range of voices. He decided that it was a fascist platform. I mean, this is such a joke. What do they think actual fascists are if they think Unheard is a fascist platform? What on earth do they think if they're talking? I mean, what do they think Trump is? What do they think Hitler was? I mean, they their minds just can't go um, to what to what fascism is, surely. And so they cancelled the unheard debate. Grace said that he was still looking forward to debating me. But then, of course, the trans activists kicked off. Now, look. But I think that Grace knew. That I lost Helen- you there for, sorry there, I lost you there for about 10 seconds. You said, and then... So this kicked off and then I lost you for like five seconds. Okay. So, I think that Grace knew fine well 
that if he was in a room with me or with Helen, we would make mincemeat of him in a very <laughs> civilized, proper yeah. manner. Yeah. And that we would basically strip the clothes off the emperor and leave his staggering work of penis there for all to see. And I think that other trans activists warned him not to debate either me or Helen. Mm-hmm. They're both very good at what we do, but we also understand the issues. Both of us are compassionate women, or yes. we wouldn't be doing what we do. So we weren't going to be there being anti-trans or cruel or unkind. We would have been courteous and warm and friendly. And that is a death kiss to them because they have painted us as witches, as evil turfs, as monsters. And how can you then reconcile that with how we actually are in real life? So he cancelled and that was a real shame. And his book um, is a flop and Laurie Penny's book is also a flop, despite, you know, their kind of histrionics uh, to the contrary. They must think we're stupid. We have agents, we have publishers. We know how to look at how many books have been sold. Right. And I suppose with Laurie writing a book about feminism, I would expect if I wrote a book about car mechanics, if I wrote a book about meteorology, about how to um, how to fit double glazing windows in tall buildings, my book would flop because it's not something I've done. And it's not something that I'm good at or understand. And that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. And <laughs> do you want to share your tweet? <laughs> the one that J.K. Rowling backed up, which I thought was one of the funniest tweets out there. <laughs> uh, which Lori. one did it? You sent it to Lori after the D- the PTSD claim. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I never tag Lori and I and I never I never tag her and I don't ever. Oh, OK. Quote, I don't ever quote tweet her because that's unkind and that that just is not cricket as we say okay. um but what i did was i okay so just a little bit of background i have um an absolute aversion to noisy eaters especially in close confinement and i travel on trains and on planes a lot for my work and pretty much every time i travel some dude and occasionally a woman will open a packet of potato chips and start crunching away <laughs> noisily and wiping their hands on their, and it's just gross. And so occasionally just, you know, hmm. when, when I can, I'll show a photograph of an open packet of crisps on a chair next to me and say, look at this, how I suffer. <laughs> and so it's known, it's just a bit of a joke. And, yeah. um, and Joe Rowling knows this because she's seen the tweets and probably thinks, they're mildly funny. And then in response to Laurie deciding that she had complex PTSD because of bad book reviews, um, I, of course, twisted it to say so that only those people in the know would know what I was talking about. Right. That I had just been on a train to the northeast of England, which I had, and that some man had opened a large packet of cheese and onion potato chips next to me, which he had, and that I have diagnosed myself with complex PTSD. And if he, I don't get help, medical help, by the next station, I might actually have to be institutionalised by the end of my journey. So it was just one of those kind of, what a joke this woman is. Rowling thought it was 
Very funny. So she replied, thoughts and prayers, Julie. <laughs> yeah, thinking of you. And of course, guess what happens? These two women having a laugh at the ridiculousness of Laurie Penny. Remember, she's still there being ridiculous. They decided that Joe and I were laughing at people with mental health issues. Of course. Yeah, of course. Why not? I mean, when someone claims to have PTSD based on a review of her book, Let's not attack that person for being right. disingenuous and possibly seeking fake, fake uh, compassion. Yeah, no, I I laughed out loud just because I know that J.K. Rowling herself has gone through a load yeah. of shit mm-hmm. based on the fact that she once said that biological sex is a reality. And I'm paraphrasing her, but it's where yes. that's a big piece. Where in your introduction you wrote this: the reinvention of the term sex and gender means that people are at best confused and at worst lead to believe that all sexual minorities and multiplicity of genders should be subsumed under the banner of feminism. And that's a human rights violation to challenge this. Gender, which feminists have always sought to abolish because it is the imposition of sex stereotypes on girls and women, is now dressed up and handed back to us as an immutable individual identity. At the same time, women are under pressure to deny the biological realities of our bodies, to use terms such as chest feeding for breastfeeding, front hole for vagina. Even the term woman is the danger of becoming obliterated in favor of menstruator, womb haver, and non-man. And that was your opening. So obviously I was very interested in the book because you're like, and, and for a lot of the folks that listen to my platform they're not aware of this because i wasn't aware of this a year ago i started diving into this to understand why and just in general we we dive into subjects that divide our culture so originally we started talking about defund the police because after the murder of george floyd there were progressives in our country that actually wanted to abolish right like that's it we're done you're over and we're going to have community standards and we're going to enforce our own laws and obviously that was just you know an overreach and a sim- a very simplistic emotional response that didn't make any sense so i actually started interviewing social progressives here in sacramento at our state capitol that wanted to abolish these people i listened to their claims their lack of remedy i interviewed police captains and police chiefs and beat cops and politicians to just just try to understand like, hey, guys, this is not a possibility. Then we did the same thing with critical race theory, because that's another thing that's dividing our culture just writ large. And then this and this is by far the most complex thing I've ever studied in my life as a reporter in the in the journalistic sense, like what we're doing now is having our reporters come and talk and one of which will be contacting you later. But the idea there is, I, again, maybe the word is too, too used. I'm using it too often, but gobsmacked was, I just can't get it out of my system because every time I read this, I'm like, so, uh, and I was talking to, and this is another thing too. I think the mob is far worse than the individuals, yeah. right? So I've, in, I've talked to individual trans folks. I just had one on the show last week who used to work with me at my ad agency as a full stack developer. And she just came 
out as trans in July, June of last year. And so I interviewed her and we had a great talk and it was wonderful. And it was very typical. There was no vitriol and I hate you. And I made sure to, I mispronounced her once, but I wasn't trying to. And mm-hmm. she laughed mm-hmm. and it was cool to your point. And the same thing with you and Helen Joyce and every other feminist I've read is that you all talk about, and I have it somewhere in my notes where you have no problem using pronouns. You're compassionate to the cause. Trans women are trans women and they need to be protected and they should be loved and they should have rights right. and all of that. That's not the point. It's the ideology itself has gone to the point where motherhood, the word mother is now somehow exclusive and using a vagina and biology and things that that's where I think our culture has yet to grasp how problematic this is. Mm -hmm. And this is just on the on the vernacular. So like if you can no longer say what a male is and what a female is without being Mm -hmm. called a transphobe or a bigot or a Nazi, and then having the vitriol thrown at you that, that you have done. I mean, you've been non-platformed and deplatformed, correct? Or is it just one or the other? I don't know. But and and a lot of this has to do with your early article, Gender Bender Beware in 2004, I think you wrote. And and that was one of those articles where you went to an American university in 2018 and had the same problem. And, and, and you want to talk about that? That's also a very telling story where you were debating, I think, a, 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 it was definitely a man, but he was talking about legalizing rape. Or le- le- yeah, decriminalizing rape. And then, <laughs> why don't you tell the story? Because I'm not remembering it correctly, but I just remember okay. just being aghast at this as well. Well, first of all, I'd love to talk to you after uh, this show sometime about the defund the police stuff because i'm actually going to new york to investigate that as a story uh, next oh, month got any time so, i've done a lot great. a lot of work on it great. Okay. so i'd love to i'd love to pick your brains that's fantastic sure. Mary. thank you the issue um about the universities is that often feminists young feminist students will put forward my name as someone they want to come on campus and speak to them and they'll be told no we can't have her she would cause literal harm to trans people to sex workers she's a phobe she's a biphobe she's a polyamory phobe she's a this i mean ridiculous um and that's i call that no platforming because what they've said is she can't come yeah yeah and and you know the the national union of students um from 2008 as a result of my 2004 article in the guardian which everyone can read you can see it's a bit cheeky but it was very reasonable in my view um i was added by the nus uh, along with five fascist groups that were deplat that were no platformed i was added as a single person for the first time me and five Hi. fascist groups that i couldn't so that's no platforming then yeah. deplatforming is is as far as i'm concerned more painful for me because they they get the invites out they insist they want to hear me mm-hmm. um whether they agree with me or not they will think this will be a good debate a good lecture a good session and the invitations go out it goes online tickets are sold my train tickets are booked my hotel is booked and then they cancel and they do so because they've caved into the bullies that relentlessly put pressure on the organisers to cancel either my invitation from the university or from any other venue. I was, for example, invited in 2018 to speak 
at a brilliant organization called the Salford Working Class Movement Library. Now, Salford is in the northwest of England, it's near Manchester. And uh, it was a great resource for those that wanted to look at working class history, the labor movement, socialists, communists, even. Mm-hmm. Um, how the history of working class people um, has been written out. And I was asked to go and speak as someone who had grown up as a working class girl in a northeast town as a lesbian. And as 99% of the time when I go and talk at public events, it's never about the trans issue. It's always about male violence against women. Or sometimes it is about the experience of being a young lesbian and the prejudices that I faced and how things have moved on and how some things are still bad. And the trans activists went after the library, all run by volunteers. When the volunteers wouldn't cave in, they blocked the phone line by constantly ringing 24 hours a day. They went after their funders. They have hardly any money. And when they could, they, there was a petition. These people were relentless, but the organisers stood firm. The event was a sellout. It was packed. It was a great event. We didn't mention the trans issue. And there was a stupid group of idiots outside shouting. They always have the same slogans. Trans women are women. Um, No turfs on our turf. And then, of course, the more recent one, because I campaign to end sex trade. Blow jobs are real jobs. I mean, please. Because they're so pro-prostitution. They think that it's a viable career choice for women. They don't do it, of course. No, no, no. They've got mummy and daddy's trust fund to rely on. No. So that happens. And then when we get to the, um, the couple of examples in the States, I'd published a book, uh, The Pimping of Prostitution, on uh, research on the global sex trade. And it was published in the, in the US. And so during my tour, I um, was invited to a college in Texas. And the morning that I was due... It was in Austin. The morning that I was due there and I travelled over from Dallas, I was told that I'd been deplatformed because I could incite suicide and harm to trans people. And that was that. That was and it. That was it. But the, the quite funny um, example of being, well, an attempt to deplatform me at Michigan University, one that still makes me laugh to this day, was during the research for my book on the sex trade, I'd been invited to speak, uh, to debate a men's rights activist who, as you say, you know, thinks that women make it up about rape, that there's no gender pay gap, that right. women have it better than men, there is no such thing as sexism. And he had this huge following from men's rights activists on campus. They were all Trump supporters. Um, and it was, it, you know, I I was going into a kind of quite hostile environment. So on the one hand, you've got these MRA, as we call them, men's rights activist supporters, mainly men, but some women, uh, all wanting to kiss the feet of my opponent. And then you had the so-called progressives, what I call the blue fringed mob with their trans rights flags and the like, 
who whose mission was to get me off campus. So there's this absolute woman-hating, right-wing scumbag talking about criminalising abortion, women lie about being raped, the most horrendous uh, attitudes of misogyny. And he was just given a free pass. They were so traumatised, these students, that they'd failed to get me deplatformed that there was a shadow event going on in the joining lecture theatre whilst I was talking. It had cuddly toys. <laughs> it had actual pets, like people yeah. brought their cats and dogs. Yeah. There were um, posters affirming their gender identity on the wall. There were trained counsellors, therapists in the room talking to these kids, these brats, as I would call them, in order to get them through this terrible moment when a feminist who'd fought for women's rights for four decades was on campus talking about how to end rape. That was it. And then after the event, of course, so we did our talk, I trounced him, which, to be fair, probably a, probably a court <laughs> could have done. And... I was then asked to go back for dinner um, with him, uh, with a couple of his supporters, women telling me that I should support the right to bear arms as a way to end rape. So you just shoot them, you just kill them, right? That um, we don't need feminism, we need guns. I mean, these mad yeah. people, but mainstream in America, I understand that. And uh, the students that had invited the pair of us to debate, all of whom were Trumpites, and they said, come along for dinner. And once I had stood at the bar and downed very quickly an extremely strong martini. You did go. Ah, well, here's the thing. When I downed the martini and we were told to be seated, I said, I'm so sorry, everyone. I can't stay for dinner. I'm a middle-aged lesbian. I've got to Skype my cats before they go to bed. Bye. <laughs> And I went off and had a really nice dinner on my own. That was probably wise. But so this is something that I wanted to ask you about too, depending on how much homework you've done on this topic. This is, safe space is also something we dealt with at True 30. I interviewed professors, former professors at Berkeley, USF here in San Francisco. I interviewed students. And I have the same problem. <laughs> like I understand that safe space on college campuses is different than single female only spaces. Mm -hmm. But the idea behind liberal progressives is exactly what you talked about. So it, and this is kind of where I acquiesced to the professors when they told me, is that if you are, you know, any minority group and you're being picked on and you find a group of like kind people at the campus, we're going to provide you a space and you can be with these folks and you can talk mm -hmm. and you can heal yourself. I was like, all right, all right, fine. I'll go along with that. And I don't want to dive too deep into that. What I don't agree with, and which I think absolutely infuriates me, is that these safe spaces are now for ideological yeah. and emotional harm. So it's exactly what just took place with you. A storied and celebrated feminist comes to the campus to talk about rape and patriarchy and the problem therein and is debating a misogynistic asshole and the university is going crazy about you. 
So like that's mm-hmm. this is like, you know, in Jerry Seinfeld, it's bizarre world. Like this is the right. upside down bizarre world. It doesn't yeah. make any sense. So then this is what I want to ask you as well. The violence language is violence. Words are violence. The same yeah. thing took place at the Berkeley campus with Ben Shapiro. So mm-hmm. Ben Shapiro here in the United States, I'm sure you've heard of him, but mm-hmm. he's a right wing conservative with the biggest media platform in the country today. I did a big, we did a big dive into him about two months ago. And he has 15 million podcasts downloaded a month. He's got a hundred million dollar empire now called the Daily Wire. He is mm-hmm. unbelievably successful as his outreach, just crazy. And he went to Berkeley, which in you know, 1964 was the home of free speech. And they tried to shut him down. They tried to deplatform him. There were $600,000 of extra security to make sure that this, and he's not even crazy right. He's just right. And I would say, you know, he's not a moderate, but, and he's not a threat to anybody. And I actually listen to him so that I understand the most powerful man in news media. I want to know what he's thinking and talking yeah. about. He is, he's not a dangerous human being. And, and if you do some homework on him, you know, you realize that he just, he shouldn't be murdered and he shouldn't mm-hmm. die and all the things that people are saying. So that is an example was like, okay. And the same thing was thrown at, uh, Milo Yiannopoulos and Milo Yiannopoulos was much more of a provocateur and kind of a jerk. And I don't really like that young man at all, but they started to say that words were violence with Milo and they broke into a raging riot. They had 1500 people riot at the campus. This is in 2017. It caused a half a million dollars worth of damage. They broke ATMs and windows. And their response was, be, this is our violent response to their violence, which was words or violence, and they're causing us physical harm. And I was like, oh, fuck off. That is not yeah. accurate. It's not. And you guys are actually making shit up so that you can go crazy on this doesn't work. It's not physical violence to use words. Words are not bullets. And if they are, then we have to recalibrate our whole vernacular as it relates to language because it's not accurate. And then the same the same. And this is, I cannot find any data on this, which is violence, words are violence. And if you use these words of violence to us, we will then kill ourselves. And we have causal data to show you this. And everyone that I've talked to on the progressive side references the Williams Institute, which is also not, it's the UCLA Institute that talks about this. But even in their preamble with the Institute, it says, We've only actually done homework on suicidal attempts, not actual deaths, right? And so they give you the preamble, like, hey, we really don't have any causal effect, but everyone's talking about those things. So for me, could you talk about those two pieces, the nonsense that words are actual violence, and then the actual causal connection that is claimed by the progressives, that if if you don't agree that trans women are women, you are a murderer, is basically what they're saying. It's, it's totalitarianism. It's the kids really stamping their feet and saying, we're going to make you, we're going to make you suffer so much that you will cave in. And the yeah. interesting thing about Ianapolis is I debated him in Manchester, in the UK, oh, wow. a few years back. And again, I wiped the floor with him. He's an idiot. Um, <laughs> you know, he had, he had some reach at some stage. He probably thought he had charisma. He really doesn't. And the reason why I debated him isn't because I'm interested. I'm not interested in debating people like him. No. Not because I'm illiberal about this, but because they're pointless. He's a showman. He doesn't believe sure. what he's saying. So therefore, no. what's the point of me trying to kind of 
pick apart what he's saying. I've already won because because he's just such an idiot. But <laughs> the reason why I did was because Manchester University Free Speech Society asked if I would come and speak at their campus. And immediately that they asked for clearance from the powers that be, mm-hmm. they began the usual to block me. Um, and they'd also invited Yanapolis to debate with me at the free speech event. And they were fine with Yanapolis? Well, this is the thing. <laughs> but I, agreed, I agreed to do it because I wanted to think about taking a test case legal challenge at some stage um, about being no platformed and deplatformed because, of course, our universities are public institutions. And I've also been, you know, research, visiting research fellow at various academic institutions. I've been an academic in the past. And, you know, it's it's actually depriving students from hearing particular points of view, but it's also potentially causing harm to me. I mean, you know, however, however you define that. So I agreed to go and debate with Yiannopoulos and immediately all of the blue fringe law started going crazy about Bindle's a bigger, she's a Nazi. I mean... They always go straight to Hitler, don't they? Yep. It's never a mid-range dictator. It's never a kind of half hour. with Pol Pot. <laughs> it's not no Pol Pot, you know, it's always Hitler. Yeah. And so they, they started about the harm, the literal harm, the literal yes. violence. I mean, what the trans activists would ever have left as language if you banned the words actual and literal, I do not know. But there they were, kicking off. And in the meantime, Yiannopoulos who has got some pretty offensive views, I still think, you know, let him speak. He was fine. He wasn't. And all of a sudden... Blows me away. Something really really odd happened, though, uh, Jerry, and this is, I think, the kind of liberal strand that runs through humanity. It's our kind of common sense, uh, in a way. Even my enemies started saying, what? Oh, this is odd. You're having Yiannopoulos, but you've banned Bindle. <laughs> and even they could see that I've done actual good in the world. Yeah. Whatever you think of my feminism, I mean it. I've put the work in. Um, I've got credentials. And they were, you know, I've helped women get out of prison, for God's sake. You know, there are tangible results. And so it kicked off. And so what they did was they banned him as well. But not before they'd said, okay, we understand that Yiannopoulos is also dangerous. He's, his words are going to cause literal violence like Bindles. So what we'll do is we'll put him under measure so that there's security in the room and he's not allowed to say certain things and not allowed to come up with certain points of view. And it, it just all blew apart. And we both ended up on campus and there was the usual picket of people that have not read a word I've written, haven't listened right. to anything I've said and just seem to be there because they can't be bothered to go to lectures. So it went ahead. Now, your question about the literal violence stuff uh, and words of violence. You know, I mean, there are some words that are deeply, deeply offensive and I would say can cause psychological harm if repeated over and For over sure. In a particular context, and we know this, and we, you know, we, we, we know it from, we know it from Holocaust survivors. We know it from Black British people who grew up in schools as the only Black kid, and that the, the words that were hurled at them. That so, yeah, it it hurts, but 
what is violence and what is harm? Well, it's certainly not getting somebody's pronouns wrong. And it's definitely not subjecting them to a text in a university that now is more likely to have a content or trigger warning on it because it deals with colonization of certain nations. It deals with racist acts within the slave trade. It deals with rape, um, depictions of sexual violence. Please, come on. What on earth do you expect if you're looking at history and if you're looking at world politics and you're reading the text of people that want to maybe not repeat history, maybe give you an education? There's a thought. (laughs) And I found out recently from Oxford University, which, as you will know, is one of our two highest universities in the land, where um, a freedom of information we call it a subject access request that I submitted because I'd heard rumors that my book and Kathleen Stock the the, um, former philosophy um, professor that was hounded out of her job for saying trans women are trans women Mm -hmm. that, that both of our books my feminism for women book and her book on gender identity material had content warnings on them Content warnings on them. Now, this is a university that has various copies in different languages of Mein Kampf that have books written by men who have, it's turned out, actually sexually abused two-year-olds. They have books written by colonists, by slavers. It, It actually is unbelievable that they would choose two feminists to pick out to put content no warnings on their text so i'm currently i've actually lodged a a formal complaint i'm not one that normally bothers with this it's gone on for 18 years with me and i suppose i just have had enough of letting the institutions get away with it and that's why i'm actually going to call oxford university to task good good for you and and that's exactly the point where and we have like five minutes left so i know you get to your mom And I want to make sure I hold you to that or I hold myself to that because I could talk to you for five hours. But that is where I also I got a lot of trouble for this because I said it on on my on camera that if my two little boys went to Berkeley and needed a safe space with milk and cookies and pillows and affirmation, you know, affirmation on the walls and counselors, because someone in the public square was wearing a red hat and preaching the GOP mantra, I would bring them home. And I would say, I, I'm sorry, I failed you as a father, (laughs) right? You guys are not, I just, I don't know how I screwed up, but the fact that you need a safe space and the, and the, the most egregious example of this was Brown university, by the way, here in the United States, where they had the milk and cookies and the pillows and the quiet music and the animals. I mean, this was, and, and (laughs) as I said to the professors that I was talking to, I said, this is not eight to 12 year olds. This is 18 to 22 year olds. These are adults. I mean, their their actual peers are in war. Some of them in foxholes, some of them being shot. Right. This is not, right. I don't understand this. This is, if you want, and then Dr. Jonathan Haidt wrote a whole book about it, which is yes. Coddling of the American Mind. And it's a big thesis to everything he's talking about now, specific mm-hmm. to these movements. And, and I don't know if you've ever read any of John McCorder's stuff, but you know, mm-hmm. 
I love him. <laughs> I think he's a yes. riot. And his whole book, Woke Racism, talks about, in part, this whole coddling of the kids and that this progressive ideology itself has become a religion. That's mm. the big piece of that. It book. is. It is a religion. It's a religion. And it's like the original sin depends on what it is for, you know, for you as a feminist, you just being a feminist is the original sin. <laughs> and, like, and so like, there's no way you can shed that. And we're going to make sure that we trounce and every possibility that we can't have a real feminist on a panel. And that's the thing, too, is like if you disagree with Ben Shapiro or Mila Yiannopoulos or Julie Bindo or Helene Joyce, go and watch and pose questions and think and read some history. And by the way, read their work. Right. <laughs> right. Read your work. If, if you have read any of your books and I've read two of them and I've read most of your articles, not most, I've read many of your articles. And if I had a bone to pick, I could be specific. <laughs> I could say, yeah, well, exactly. you know, in your book, you mentioned that, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, and I disagree with you. Or, and can you tell me why you believe this? Right. That right. is happening. It's actually, I haven't read your shit. Someone told me you're a turf. So now I'm going to hold up a sign <laughs> and I'm going to stand out in front of the symposium and say, hey, we can't have her up there because she's the Antichrist. She is a Nazi. She is yeah. subhuman and so she should die. Yeah, so it, it's, it's interesting that the, the book, The Coddling of the American Mind, I was at a university uh, for a meeting yesterday and the criminology professor there, who's great, she's a brilliant feminist. She's she's a good liberal. She's an eminently reasonable and extremely bright person. And she said, I'm going to make it required compulsory reading, that book, The Coddling of the American Mind. That is what they have to read before That's I tell them anything else, because that will open their mind. She said, and I don't really mind which way they go, to the left, to the right, right, exactly, just whatever, but just know what's happening to you on campus right now. It's disgraceful that these places of learning have turned into places of preaching. It mm -hmm. is a religion. Yeah. And, you know, what, what, we, what we should do, I mean, obviously, you know, we're adults, you talk about your, uh, your, your child um, and, and, and wanting to make sure that they have the best in life. That's presumably not to indoctrinate him with your views, but to help him open his mind to the point where he'll form his own views. And I've, I've gone right up to picket lines to protesters outside of events where I've been speaking at. And I've tried to talk with them. I've tried to engage with them. And I remember saying to one young woman, a student at one university where they tried to ban me, talk to me. Let's have a conversation. Yeah. I said, have you not read? You know, the thing is that you, you spout this stuff about me, but just did you read that 2004 article? No, I'm not going to read that. I don't want to be traumatized. And I thought, Ive, this is just go home. Just stop. Tell mum and dad, or mum and mum, or they and them. Right. Stop paying for your education right now because it's a waste of money. It really is. And that's actually like doing a book review without reading the book. So the fact that they're there <laughs> protesting you without reading your stuff, that's absolutely infuriating <laughs> to me because it's like, it, just read it. I mean, I, I went back on this. It was, yeah, it, <laughs> I won't get into it because we have to go. But thank you. <laughs> I want you to go see your mom and enjoy the rest of your day. And by the way, anytime you want to talk defund the police, just ping okay. me online. I have, like I said, I've done months of homework on this. I'm passionate about it. And uh, it, it has nothing to do with the fact that we have racism in our police departments, because we know that. 
It's it's the uh, ludicrous I, yeah. nature of of the it's the typical left wing progressive emotion that took yes. place that was not and the, the irony and we can talk about this at length is that they the social progressive were asking for the same thing that the officers were asking for which all right. has to do with budgets things out of their control all the way from federal state county city everything had to do with budgets and all of it has to do with mental health that's <laughs> nothing to do yeah. with i mean yes there's racism but that's absolutely it's not a small part but it's it's not the fulcrum to the problem and that is typical yeah. of this you know this this gender ideology gender dysphoria discussion has gotten so out of hand the fact and you as a sad <sighs> collateral damage piece that that's what bothers me is that and i just so let me say as someone who's only been studying feminism for a couple years at this level kudos for what you're doing what you've done i loved your book i love your articles uh i'm supposed to be you know somewhat objective <laughs> looking at this but i think what you've done is amazing and i i just wish you all the luck moving forward with everything you're going to continue to do and i love your spirited and witty writing i laugh out loud quite often so thanks again for coming on the show and uh yeah we'll talk anytime off camera about defund the police it's been so lovely to talk with you jerry and it's a real pleasure to get to know you a little bit so thank you for inviting me on your show oh you're welcome cheers Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.